following audio is from St Nick's Durham. As a church, we exist to love God, love people and love Durham. We hope that this sermon will serve you well as a supplement to your regular Bible reading, prayer and participation in your local church. For more information about St Nick's Durham, directions or resources, please visit stnicks.org.uk. The reading is from the first book of Samuel, chapter 18, verses 1 to 16. 1 Samuel, chapter 18. After David had finished talking with Saul, Jonathan became one in spirit with David, and he loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him, and did not let him return to his father's house. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Jonathan took off the robe he was wearing and gave it to David, along with his tunic and even his sword, his bow and his belt. Whatever Saul sent him to do, David did it so successfully that Saul gave him a high rank in the army. This pleased all the people and Saul's officers as well. When the men were returning home after David had killed the Philistine, the women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet King Saul with singing and dancing with joyful songs and with tambourines and lutes. As they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry. This refrain galled him. They have credited David with tens of thousands, he thought, but me with only thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? And from that time on, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. The next day, an evil spirit from God came forcefully upon Saul. He was prophesying in his house while David was playing the harp as he usually did. Saul had a spear in his hand and he hurled it, saying to himself, I'll pin David to the wall. But David eluded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with David but had left Saul. So he sent David away from him and gave him command over a thousand men. And David led the troops in their campaigns. In everything he did, he had great success because the Lord was with him. When Saul saw how successful he was, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he led them in their campaigns. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Living God, speak to us through your word. 
and draw us closer to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to make two introductory points first. Uh, When I say in this sermon, Saul, I mean Saul. Uh, When I say Paul, I mean Saul. I've discovered an unfortunate habit, which is to say Paul all the time when I mean Saul. It's very irritating. I'm doing my best to stop it, and I'm doing it all the time. So if I say Paul, I mean Saul, okay? I will not mention Paul in the whole of this sermon, except by accident. Just sit there, if I do, and look superior. That's number one. Uh, Number two is the chapters of 1 Samuel, not just the one we've read, but both sides of it as well. We often find that God behaves in a very strange and sometimes upsetting way. He seems to be a God of military success, and a lot of people get killed. He sends a bad spirit on Saul. Did you spot that? And we wonder, what's going on? And one comment that I found helpful is that early Israel, and we are early Israel, didn't focus on what we would call secondary causes. They attributed things that we would attribute to secondary causes straight to God. After all, God is behind everything that happens. So they're not wrong. So you'll find when you read, God did this, and God sent this, and God did the other. God gave me a cold and a sore throat. I don't do that. I use secondary causes, and what I say is, uh, I probably caught this cold on the train from King's Cross to Durham at the end of last week. You see the difference. But in the only Israel, they would say, God sent a cold to David. And what's he going to do with the cold? Will he use it in God's to God's glory. Sometimes there will be a bit of a tension with us when we read the way they put it and the way we would put it. And the secret, I think, is to read the story as it is, where God is a character in the story like anyone else. And alongside that, to read the story in the light of Jesus, who's given us the ultimate portrait of God's character and person. That's the two introductory bits. So we hurl ourselves into one of the most gripping and revealing stories in the Bible, and the narrator is a master of his craft. He is a scriptwriter who plays with our curiosity, with our emotions, with our moral judgments, and with our desire to know more about God. I would recommend that you read it straight out like a novel. Start at chapter 8 and go right through to chapter 31. Read it like a novel. It is a mixture of Game of Thrones and Downton Abbey. You will not be disappointed. So go with it all the way. But today we're going to focus on two men, both kings, eventually, Saul and David. The Bible's verdict on David is that he was a man after God's own heart. So what does that mean? And at one point in the story, God says, I am grieved that I made Saul king. Why would that be? These are two questions that come out of the passage. And this chapter 18 catches a crucial moment in the relationship between these two men. 
And the scales can tip one way or the other. Is this the tide in the affairs of men that leads on to glory? Or is this the moment when the dam cracks and the water pours through? See? Can't wait to read it, can you? Well, I hope, anyway. Let's look at Saul for a while. Now, Saul has great potential. He is head and shoulders taller than anybody else. So he looks like a king. But there are hints that he has a poor opinion of himself and lacks confidence. He's found hiding among the baggage when they're looking for him. And Samuel says, you are little in your own eyes. Now, this could be raw material for an impressive humility. He doesn't think much of himself. But if it goes the wrong way, it could drive him to overcompensate and react violently against anyone who he thought was a competitor. You see how he has the raw material to go one way or the other. He has a terrifying anger. And you can see it when an Israelite city is threatened by the king of Ammon. King of Ammon says, I will make a treaty with you. And the beginning of the treaty will be that I will gouge out your right eyes. That's some treaty, isn't it? You can hardly wait, can you? And Saul, when he hears this, burns with anger. And like the incredible hunk from the Avengers films, he cuts two bulls in pieces and sends the bits through the land to every tribe in Israel. Join me to wreak vengeance on the king of Ammon and the Ammonites, or I will do this to your cattle. Well, of course, everyone joined in, didn't they? It was quite a threat. And they slaughter the Amalekites, the Ammonites, until the heat of the day. And after the battle, I guess they said to one another, this is why we needed a king. This is what a king does for you. But the same all-consuming anger that was a part of his character can lead him to hurl his spear at his own son and several times at David. He says God gave him a new heart. But Saul still needs to look after that heart because it is his soul, his inner self, that's on the line. Now, one or two things that happen just before this story uh, and just after the story that show that Saul isn't really the man for the job. He waits with his army at Gilgal. And Samuel has told him, stay there till I come, about seven days. And when Samuel is late, only a bit late, Saul takes things into his own hands and performs the sacred sacrifices that only Samuel was authorized to perform. And if you talk to him, you said, what have you just done, Saul? That was an incredible thing to do, just to say, well, I'll do the sacrifices then. He would say something like, well, he was late coming. And the men were drifting away. And I could see myself left without an army at all. So I thought to myself, why should I wait? I am king after all. I'll do the sacrifices. Oh dear. 
in the middle of a battle against the Philistines, just at the turning point when Israel is about to put all their enemies to flight, Saul utters a curse. No one is to eat anything until we finish the job. And who, if anyone does eat anything, he will be put to death. But Jonathan didn't hear Saul say that. And Jonathan is hungry and he's been fighting and he eats some honey. And Saul insists that Jonathan must be put to death because of this oath, this curse that the king had said. And it's actually only a protest from the soldiers that meant that Saul had to let Jonathan go free. Clearly Saul reckons he has power of life and death over everyone. Sacred oath. You can imagine him saying, I say them all the time. I'll say what I want to say. Not sure this is the man after God's own heart. And there are other examples of Saul acting as a man who really does what he wants. On his way to Carmel, he stops for a while, quite a long while, to set up a monument in his honour. Oh dear. Saul is a religious man because he knows what you're supposed to do if you're religious. But he is not devoted with heart devotion. He doesn't seek a relationship with God. He doesn't address God directly when you read carefully. When he speaks to Samuel, Saul asks Samuel to speak to the Lord your God. So it was second hand to him. He seems not to pray or personally seek forgiveness. I think he's got an idea that religion might be necessary and it might even be useful. But where is the heart? Whenever Saul, one commentator said, whenever Saul uses pious language, it seems as if God does not refer to a personal being at all, but rather to something more like an institution or a cause or an idea. So Saul can use religion when he needs it. He can be at ease with religion as if the king was greater than all that stuff. Like, like couples who decide they will attend their local church in order that they will gain points, which will make sure that their son or daughter gets into the church school. Quite a lot of people do that, apparently. But it's just a use of religion. I like the story of Henry IV of Navarre, I only know one tiny little bit about that, but I have looked it up in Wikipedia, so I know a bit more than I did. Henry IV of Navarre was a loyal Protestant king, and on the 25th of July, 1593, Henry renounced his Protestantism and converted to Catholicism in order to secure his hold on the French crown. And the only bit I ever know about Henry is the quote, when somebody said, you are Protestant and now you've gone Catholic and he says, great quote Paris is worth a mass that's using religion isn't it but we too can be at ease with holy things and forget the holiness of God that lies behind them we can say what is acceptable but doesn't come from the heart 
We can go through the motions, but neglect the intimate, obedient, passionate, personal relationship with God. It's time we turn to David. Saul is impressed by David, and he takes David on the staff. In fact, David does rather well. He succeeds in everything he does and rises like a meteor uh, through the ranks, ending up among the top brass in the army. And Saul is pleased, and the people are pleased, and even the generals and the brigadiers are pleased. And the Bible tells us, you know why? Because the Lord was with David. The young women are also pleased with him. In fact, the middle-aged women are pleased with him. In fact, you do get the feeling as you read 1 Samuel that any woman from 17 to 52 was besotted with David, had photos of him and posters in their bedrooms. And after a particular away win, when David scored a hat-trick, they make up a little ditty with a catchy tune. David, David, he's our man. If he can't do it, no one can. Actually, Saul has killed thousands, and David has killed tens of thousands, but mine is catchier, all right? (laughs) And this is the moment, this silly song that they're all singing, this is the moment it all goes horribly wrong for Saul. Saul is at the parting of the ways. Listen to his inner voice. That wretched song, I can't get it out of my mind. And what else does David want? There's only the kingdom left to him now. And from that time on, the Bible says, Saul kept a jealous eye on David. So it begins with envy and jealousy, and it begins to corrupt Saul's soul. The eyes which could have gazed with pleasure on David's career. David was doing a lot of good for Saul and his reputation. The eyes now watch him narrowly and suspiciously and invent fake news about him and paint him as a traitor and a plotter. And this one moment carries the weight of Saul's life story. Nothing will ever be the same again. And when Humpty Dumpty has fallen off the wall, then not all the king's horses and all the king's men will be able to put him together again. It's such a small thing, but it opens the dam and the waters flood through. And the rest of Saul's story is a tragedy because Saul gives himself up bit by bit to fear and suspicion and hatred and the evil eye. And after a while, God gives him up to the path that he has chosen. Have you noticed how often in the Bible God endorses mankind's choices? I'm thinking now of Pharaoh. Pharaoh hardens his heart a number of times. Then suddenly it says, and God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God says, okay, if that's what you want. And here envy turns to hatred. Saul tries to pin David to the wall with a javelin. He promotes him in order that he may be killed in battle. And he offers him his daughter Michal, 
but with a price tag on her that is designed, deliberately designed, to lead to David's death. Read the story for yourself. And it goes on and on. David is a complete contrast. We've said the Bible calls him the man after God's own heart. But as his career goes on, the Bible recognizes that he is a man with blood on his hands. But the great thing about him, he is passionate about God. We're constantly taken back to the teenager who said to Goliath, Don't you dare despise the army of the living God. Because by showing contempt for them, you show contempt to the living God. And this day I come against you in his name. And those words spoken when he was a young man, you hear them again, as it were, in the way that he behaves. David is passionate for God's honor. He reminds us of Jesus cleansing the temple, actually. And when Jesus has finished throwing over tables and letting the pigeons go and driving out the money changers, there's a little line in Mark's gospel that says, and he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So Jesus, like David, saying to people, you think this is a shortcut? This is the house of God. Go the long way around. And interestingly, When the disciples saw all this and heard this, they say, zeal for God's house is consuming him. See, Jesus is like David. It's all here. What makes David tick? Zeal for God. With all his faults, and boy, there's a lot of them, he turns again and again to his heart's love, which is almighty God. And because of this, when he does particularly bad things, terrible wrongs, he goes to pour out his soul to God face to face. David approaches God directly for forgiveness. Saul never does. David has a keen sense of God as a dynamic presence. He pleads with God because for him, God is priceless treasure. Joseph Heller was the uh, author of Catch-22, and Catch-22 has just been done as as a film series, isn't it, on television in August. And he's famous for Catch-22 and for the phrase. But he actually wrote another book that no one ever seems to have heard of, which he called God Knows, and it is the story of David through David's eyes. It's a great book, but nobody ever reads it. And at the end of the novel, Heller deals with David's last days, according to the Bible. David is dying, you'll remember, and he cannot get warm. And they give him one of the palace young women to lie with him in bed and keep him warm. And Heller, I think, in my memory is, ends the novel with this scene. The last words of the novel are, David speaking, I am dying. I cannot get warm. And they give me a girl. And all I want is my God. And I think Heller has absolutely got it. So, finish. 
The book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, is a story which touches us closely. One, it tells us that we've been given a particular character and personality, which includes gifts and also includes faults. And there is a responsibility on us to use them for good and not for evil. Secondly, it tells us to watch what God is doing and what he wants of us. And never to think that we can act as if we were little gods. Never to use holy things as if they were our personal slot machine. And thirdly, it tells us constantly to seek that inner passionate friendship with the personal God who longs that we should be his friends. Amen. Thank you for listening to the St. Nick's Durham podcast. If you would like to hear more sermons and teaching like this, then subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about St. Nick's, visit our website at stnicks.org.uk.